And today we are concluding our series that we've been in over the last nine weeks, studying verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And this series we've been calling Note to Self. And we're talking about our true identity in Christ and who we are and what God has called us and created us to do. And today we're going to conclude this series by studying the last chapter, Ephesians chapter 6. And so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. There should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Most of the verses will be on the screen as well today. But let's dive into Ephesians chapter 6. If you're ready, would you say amen? Amen. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 6 in verse number 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong. Everybody say, be strong. We need followers of Jesus as we close 2023 and as we approach 2024, we need followers of Jesus to be strong in the Lord, uh, to be strong for what we believe and to be strong for the truth of the gospel. Be strong in the Lord, verse 10, and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. For a few minutes today, I'd like to speak to this subject. It's worth the fight. It's worth the fight. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive in today. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. And God, thank you for allowing us to come together and to worship you and to lift up your name. And Lord, I pray that we would stay sensitive to your Holy Spirit and that we would be able to apply this text to our lives and that you would be pleased in it all. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said today. How many of you grew up with siblings? Can I see your hands? You grew up with siblings. If you grew up with siblings, you know that one of the most prized and most coveted and sought after positions in life is the front seat of the car. Uh, Whoever got to sit in the front seat of the car was the luckiest one. I remember growing up, we would fight all the time about who got to sit in the front seat and who would call shotgun. How many of you ever had an argument about who sat in the front seat? And uh, we would would call shotgun, but there's certain rules that you have to play by when you call shotgun. Uh, You have to be able to see the car when you call shotgun. You can't just say it whenever you want. Uh, You have to be out 
outside when you call a shotgun. You can't just look through the window and see the car and call a shotgun. You have to be seeing it from the outside position. There's a whole uh, website about this. You can look it up if you want, shotgunrules.com. And so if you're having some arguments about this, go to the website. It'll provide some clarity for you. Uh, I read uh, there was this dad that was telling a story recently. He talked about how his two sons four and five years old, they were arguing in the back seat about who got to sit on the left side. And uh, they were saying, I want to sit on the left side. I want to sit on the left side. And they kept on arguing. And finally, the dad said, no, I'm going to let Eric, the eldest, who was five years old, Eric, you can sit on the left side. And he said, thank you, dad. Which side is the left side? And he wasn't even exactly sure which side uh, that was. You know, the truth is sometimes we fight for the sake of fighting. Uh, sometimes we are engaged in senseless conflict. There's so much senseless uh, fighting in our world today and so much uh, turmoil uh, that is taking place. But as we come to Ephesians chapter 6 and as we close out this letter today, what the Apostle Paul is going to communicate to us is that there certainly are some things in life worth fighting for. Uh, Can I tell you today that your marriage is worth fighting for? Uh, Can I tell you that your children are worth fighting for? Uh, Can I tell you that the truth of the gospel message is worth fighting for, uh, that there are some things that are absolutely worth fighting for. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he said this, Christianity is a fighting religion. Paul told Timothy, a young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And so you might not view yourself as a soldier, but the reality is, is that we are called to uh, fight uh, the good fight of faith. Now, this doesn't mean that we just engage in senseless fighting. This doesn't mean that we're looking for arguments online and on Twitter, and it doesn't mean that we're just constantly seeking uh, conflict. In fact, the opposite is true, that the Bible says that as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. And so we are called to live peaceable lives. We're called to be proponents of Uh, peace. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves and we are to be proponents of peace, then what is this fight that we are to be engaged in? Well, all throughout scripture, there's different verbiage used, this different uh, warlike verbiage that is used. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we are at war against sin. Jude 3 says that we are to earnestly contend to fight for the faith, to earnestly contend for the truth of God's word. We're to fight for the faith. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that there is a war that is raging within our own souls. Uh, Sometimes the war that we battle and the the fight that we fight is against uh, uh, the anxiety or the insecurity or the lust or the discouragement that's taking place in our own souls, in our own lives. And sometimes it's easy for us to uh, talk about the war out there, but it's very difficult for us to talk about the war in here. And so 1 Peter 2 tells us that we have to battle and fight this war that's raging within. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 6, and he says that we are to put on the whole armor of God, that we are called to uh, withstand these attacks from uh, the enemy. And so we have to be prepared to fight uh, this good fight. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm uh, 18, verse number 39, for thou hast girded me, The word girded uh, in the Bible always carries the idea of preparation, that you would uh, gird up the loins, that you would uh, make sure that you could run and you would be prepared for battle. For thou hast girded me with strength unto uh, the battle. I'm thankful today that when it comes to the battles and the temptations and the conflicts that we face in life, that we don't have to do it in our own strength, but we can rely on the strength of the Lord. I'm so thankful that we can tap into his strength and tap into uh, his power, that we don't have to do this life on our own. Now, I think it's important Anytime you talk about spiritual warfare, 
Anytime you talk about spiritual battle, uh, it's important to lay the right foundation. Everybody still with me today? Uh, It's important to lay the right foundation. And we have to recognize this, that ultimately, the ultimate war has already been won. And you say, what do you mean? How can the ultimate war and the ultimate battle already be won? Because can I remind you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died on the cross for your sin? And he died on the cross for my sin. And three days later, he rose again from the dead and he defeated sin, death, and the grave. Can I just remind you that Jesus Christ is victorious. And the Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Is anybody thankful at the 930 service that Jesus Christ is victorious and the ultimate battle has already been won? And so we have to recognize today that yes, we're gonna fight, but we fight from a position of victory and not for a position of victory. Do you see the difference? Yeah, we're called to engage in this battle and engage in this fight, but Jesus has already won. And so we are fighting from a position of victory as followers of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do today is we talk about the things in life that are absolutely worth fighting for. As we talk about this from Ephesians chapter six, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just give us three ways in which we can fight for what matters most. We need to be followers of Jesus, that we're not fighting about petty things and silly things, but we're fighting about what actually matters in life. Is anybody interested in fighting for what actually matters in life? Uh, Let me give us today three ways in which we can do this. Number one, we have to invest in the next generation. If you wanna fight for what actually matters, if you wanna fight for what matters most, you have to invest in the next generation. Now, notice what the text says in verse number one. It says this, children. Children. Now, all of us, in one sense, are children. We've all been born into this world. But specifically here, Paul is talking about the next generation, uh, children. The fact, the very fact that Paul, in this very important letter to the church of Ephesus, which was meant to be a circular letter to go to other churches, the very fact that Paul addresses children shows the high value that the early church placed on children. In fact, Leon Morris, he says that it's significant that Paul didn't just say boys. He said children addressing both boys and girls. You have to remember the culture in which Paul was writing. John Stott, he helps us kind of get the image. He said this, it was a radical change from the callous cruelty which prevailed in the Roman Empire in which unwanted babies were abandoned, weak and deformed ones were killed, and even healthy children were regarded by many as a partial nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated easy divorce. And so the value of a child was lost in that society. And can I tell you tragically, the value of children is being lost in our society as well? We have to recognize and we have to believe that at Rock Hill Church, we value the next generation. At Rock Hill Church, we value Rock Hill Kids Ministry. Uh, We recognize that we're not just in there babysitting. We are uh, endeavoring to pass and to transfer truth to the next generation. And so Paul, in this important letter, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And there's the key. Because as parents, we're not just teaching our children to submit and to be obedient, uh, simply to be people pleasers. We are teaching children in the next generation, obey your parents in the Lord. Ultimately, we do what we do to please the Lord. Uh, That's why Colossians 3.20 says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is 
well-pleasing to the Lord. And so he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord uh, for this is right. I was talking to my oldest daughter, Liv, the other day, and I said, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians, children, obey your parents in the Lord uh, for this is right. It doesn't say when they are right. Because we're going to get it wrong a lot. <laughs> we're going to make some mistakes. We're not uh, perfect, but we are called to uh, submit to that parental authority. In fact, uh, the next verse says this. Notice verse number two. He says, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And so Paul goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. And uh, he says, honor your father and mother. Now, in the Old Testament, this was an extremely big deal. In fact, to physically or verbally abuse your parents in this culture was considered a capital offense. Now, I'm thankful that we don't live in this culture today, but we have to recognize that uh, there is a calling for children to show honor and reverence and respect to their parental authority. We teach this through verbiage and through tone and through uh, body language. I read a couple of weeks ago, there were two children. They were mad at their mom because their mom took away some of their electronic devices. And so they were upset about this. And so they decided that they were going to take their mom's car and steal their mom's car, 10 and 11 years old. And so they got in their mom's car and they started driving and they drove for over 200 miles before a police officer pulled them over. And he just, the, the, the 10-year-old boy just got out of the car and, and, uh, and uh, they, were, they were living life on the run uh, there in that moment. We have to recognize that parental honor is certainly diminishing in our society today. Would you agree? Yes. Now this is dangerous because Francis Folk says this, when the bonds of family life break up, when respect for parents fails, the community becomes decadent and will not live long. And so Paul is saying, you want to have a ha happy, healthy home? Uh, you have to train up a child. You have to uh, implement honor for parents in your household. And, and what's cool about this commandment is that it's the first commandment with promise. Yeah. That this principle, this commandment comes with an attached promise to it. Now, notice what the promise is in verse number three. In other words, if you do this, this will happen. Verse three that it may be well with thee. You know what happens when you promote honor in the home? You're actually promoting peace in the home. Yeah. It will be well with you. Your, your quality of home life will improve. Uh, you'll have peace in the home. There, there will be less turmoil. It will be well with you, verse number three, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And so he says, he says when you promote honor in the home, uh, the, the, the quality of life will improve, but also the quantity of life that you will live long on the earth. He's saying as a general rule, when, parent, when children obey and submit and honor their parents, they're going to generally live longer uh, and better lives because of this. And so he says there is safety in this kind of submission. Now, notice what he says in verse number four. Now, what he's gonna say in verse number four, he's specifically addressing the parents. How many of you are a parent in the room? Can I see your hands? You're a parent. And so I think all of us need to recognize that parenting is a weighty responsibility it's one of the most difficult things in the world, but we are called and we are given instructions on how we are to parent. And we can't just parent according to uh, how we think things should be done, or we can't just parent reactionary. I'm going to do it different than the way that I learned or the way that I grew up. We have to parent according to a biblical standard. Now, he's going to address the parents, so I think all of us should lean in and say, okay, what is Paul telling the early church about parenting? What is he going to say? Notice verse number four. He says, and you fathers... Now, the same word fathers in the book of Hebrews, the Greek word, it's also used uh, interchangeably for, for father and mother, for parents. So really, he's addressing specifically fathers, but it applies to both parents. He says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. In other words, 
Uh, don't lead your children to a place of resentment or to a place of bitterness because you're constantly pushing them over the line and constantly uh, provoking them. And so he says, don't provoke your children to wrath in the way that you parent, but rather, okay, so, so that's what we shouldn't do, but here's what we should do. And he's gonna give a threefold instruction for parenting. And so again, if you're a parent in the room, I would say, uh, pay attention to what Paul says here. There's three things that this involves. He says, but bring them up, we're in verse four, bring them up in the nurture in the admonition of the Lord. So he's gonna address three things. Everybody still with me today? Parenting involves three things. First, it involves development. He says, bring them up, bring them up. This involves their development, uh, that a child should develop intellectually, spiritually, mentally, physically. This means that it's a parent's responsibility to make sure that their child is developing the way that they should be developing. This means that as a parent, we're not just gonna give our children an iPad and say, go sit in a corner for four hours and we'll visit you later. Uh, no, we have to make sure that we are uh, developing, bring them up. But then he says, bring them up in the nurture. Now the word nurture is an interesting word. It's the same word in the book of Hebrews used for chastise. Uh, the idea here is discipline. And so bring them up talks about development, but nurture talks about discipline. Yeah. By the way, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Yeah. And so we love our children. That's why we discipline. And discipline must be three things. Discipline must be consistent. It's not all over the place. It's, it's consistent across the board. Uh, discipline must be controlled. I read an interesting and convicting quote this week by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he said this when it comes to discipline with children. Uh, he says this. He says, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself. And so we have to make sure that when it comes to discipline, it's under control. It's not just anger flying off the handle, that it's consistent, it's controlled, and it's clear. And so he says, development, bring them up. In the nurture, that's discipline. And then he says, in the admonition of the Lord. The word admonition means to teach by means of words. And so this speaks to direction. And so every parent has a threefold responsibility of development, discipline, and direction that I'm going to teach my children using words. In other words, what this means is I'm not just going to have a mindset that says, you know what, I'm just going to let my kids figure this out. I'm going to let them kind of make their own choices and learn from their own mistakes. And I'm just going to kind of let them do what they want to do. And they're just going to learn the hard way. No, no, we want to provide admonition. We want to provide teaching and direction for our children. And so Paul says first uh, in this chapter, if you want to fight for what matters most, because he's going to get into this very real spiritual warfare. If you want to fight for what matters most, we have to start by investing in the next generation. Now, this is going to lead us to our second thought. You ready for number two today? The second thought is this. You have to remember who is ultimately in charge. All right? In your life and in my life, we have to remember who's ultimately in charge. Now, Paul's going to take a sharp turn here. And for the next few minutes, he's going to talk about something that was very prevalent and prominent in first century culture. And what he's going to talk about is the institution of slavery. Slavery was extremely prominent in the Roman Empire. In fact, according to many different documentation, it's estimated there were perhaps over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, slavery was rampant. It was everywhere. In fact, uh, just this letter to the city, uh, to the church that was located in the city of Ephesus, perhaps one-third of the population of Ephesus were slaves. And so Paul was writing to a culture that uh, slavery was was just kind of a natural common part of the Mediterranean economic structure, just the way that they uh, did things. 
But we have to recognize that slavery in the first century is different than what we might think of today as far as slavery. Is it okay if I give you a little bit of context this morning and, and talk about this? So it's important that we kind of get our bearings. In fact, Tony Merida, he said this, the situation Paul addressed was not like slavery in American history. It was complex and massive in scope. American slavery was primarily racial and lifelong. In Paul's day, it was not racial and it was not always lifelong. And so many times in this culture, people would actually choose slavery. Uh, they would volunteer to be a slave so they could or- earn a certain wage and then they would eventually uh, save enough money and they would purchase their own freedom and go on to do something else. An example of this would be, uh, how many of you remember in Acts chapter 24, Paul's on his different missionary journeys and Paul gets arrested and he stands before a man in Acts 24 named Felix. How many of you remember this story where Paul, he's standing before Felix in Acts chapter 24. Felix was the governor of Judea. Well, if you study Felix's life, he grew up a slave. Uh, he grew up a slave and he eventually purchased his freedom and he rose to the top all the way to governorship in Judea. And, and so uh, slavery was extremely uh, commonplace. And since everybody uh, was connected in some way to slavery, Paul is going to talk about this and how should a Christian view and handle uh, this idea of slavery. And the next few verses, what he does is he completely undermines the whole institution. And, and he's going to tell us how um, really they should be addressing this in the first century. Klein Snodgrass, he said this. He said, the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution. It lit a fuse, which at long last led to the explosion, which destroyed it. And so uh, notice, with that in mind, the context of this, notice uh, what Paul says, starting in verse five. Are you with me today? Anybody else with me today? Verse five, he says, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So very simply, verse 5, he says, uh, as you're working, make sure that you are working respectfully. You work respectfully, but you do so, the key is at the end of verse number 5, as unto Christ. As unto Christ. Now, now hang on to that. Notice verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so he says, work wholeheartedly with all your heart, but you're doing it not for any horizontal relationship. You're doing it for... Christ. Notice verse number seven. With goodwill doing service. In other words, you're working willingly uh, as to the Lord and not to men. So again, verse number seven, the key is as to the Lord. Notice verse number eight. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord. And so if you uh, serve wholeheartedly and you're working according to uh, uh, God's will, then the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And so what do we see? Four times, Paul says, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what your position is, no matter what your place is, you do what you do for the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, ultimately, remember who is in charge. Can I tell all of us today, no matter what your position in life is, no matter what your occupation is, we do what we do for the Lord. Uh, The Bible says, whatsoever you do, do it heartily, not unto men, but unto Christ. And so we do what we do for the Lord. And here's the reality. We're all servants of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, when he introduces himself in James chapter one, writing to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad in Jerusalem, James introduces himself in James 1.1 as this, James, a servant of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was James, the brother of Jesus, I might've introduced myself a little bit differently. <laughs> James, the brother of Jesus, I don't mean to brag, but that's who I am. No, he says, I'm the servant of Christ. When you have that mentality, it changes everything in life. See, Charles Spurgeon said this, grace makes us the servants of God while still we are the servants of men. 
It enables us to do the business of heaven while we are attending to the business of earth. It sanctifies the common duties of life by showing us how to perform them in the light of heaven. And that is why as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we should be the absolute best employees in every field of work. We should be the ones showing up on time. Uh, We should be the ones going the extra mile. We should be the ones being respectful. Why? Because we remember who's ultimately in charge. (laughs) We do what we do for the Lord. Now, notice verse number nine. He says, and you masters do the same things unto them. Now that, uh, again, he's undermining the whole institution of slavery. Just that sentence alone. He's saying, masters, you do the same. You treat them respectfully and uh, uh, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. You do what you do for the Lord. Your master is in heaven. And then he says this, and this thing really, this is the key, the end of verse number nine. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Don't miss this. This is the key. This undermines the whole thing of slavery. He says, there is no respecter of persons with him. There is this kind of subtle and sometimes not so subtle belief in our culture today where the culture will place their own estimated value on life. Where certain groups of people, the culture will tell you, you're more valuable based on an upbringing, based on a self-identification, based on uh, many different factors. Uh, You are more valuable than this group and this group is more valuable than this group. Can I tell you that this text completely obliterates that way of thinking? Because with God, there is no respecter of persons. Can I just remind you some really good news today at this 930 service, uh, that the ground is level at the cross, and that the blood of Jesus was shed for all of humanity, and that the love of Jesus has spread for all of humanity, and and that his love extends to every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And, And so he says, God is not a respecter of persons. And what that means then, in the church, there's absolutely no room for partiality within the church. James talked about this in James chapter number two, that we are to uh, love one another and that there is absolutely not room for partiality within the church. And so uh, Paul is addressing this, uh, this common reality in the first century. So h- how can we fight for what matters most? Well, we have to invest in the next generation. We have to remember who's ultimately in charge. Hey, no matter what we do, no matter what you do tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., your boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. Th- that's what he's saying. Remember who's in charge. Now, here's the third thought today. You ready for number three? Number three is this. We then have to suit up. Suit up. How many of you remember the movie The Incredibles? Remember when Frozone couldn't find his super suit? He's like, where's my super suit? He needed to suit up if he was going to go out into battle. Now, as we close today, uh, we're going to look at these final few verses, and Paul is saying, man, if you want to experience spiritual victory, you've got to suit up. Now, I want us to see it starting in verse number 10. It says this, finally, everybody say finally. finally. Now, sometimes in Paul's letters, when he would say finally, he wasn't actually done yet. He just said finally, and then he kept on going and talking for a long time. But here when he says finally, he's actually wrapping it up. He says, finally, verse 10, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, this is so important, and I don't want you to miss this today. He's saying you can be strong in the power of his might. Because you might be here today thinking, I want to be strong, but I don't feel strong. Because, yeah, parenting is hard. And you don't know my work situation. It's difficult, and I want to be strong, but I don't feel strong. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the power of his might. The good news is Jesus is strong enough, and so we can rely and lean on him. And so he's saying, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might, verse 11, 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So you have to be prepared. Put on the armor. And then he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is verse 12. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So here he's talking about spiritual warfare. And you can't miss, there's a, there's a very critical distinction that we have to make in the verse that we just read in verse number 12. He says, for we wrestle. We wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In other words, he doesn't say, at some point we are going to wrestle. In other words, he's not saying that the battle is coming someday. He's saying the battle is already here. We're already wrestling. We're already involved in a spiritual battle. And if you are unaware of this, or if you ignore it, or ignore this, chances are you're losing the battle. He's saying we are wrestling. Uh, We are engaged in this spiritual warfare. The devil does want to mess up your life. The devil does want to mess up your family. We are engaged in this fight. Therefore, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Notice verse number 13. He says, wherefore, take unto the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's what he's saying. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, what I want to do as we conclude is I want to go through uh, this section and I want to talk about for these uh, concluding minutes, the armor of God. Now, we're not going to be able to do a deep dive on every single piece of the armor today. Uh, We could do a whole series about this and Lord willing at Rock Hill, we will do a whole series on this, but I want to give you a brief overview of these components and I hope that you'll take some notes down and I hope that you will lean into this because I believe it's the key to uh, spiritual victory in your life, okay? And so let's notice the first one. The first one is this. We have to put on the belt of truth. Verse 14. He says, stand therefore having your loins gird about with truth. And so the very first thing that he mentions is uh, the belt of truth. He starts with the belt. Why? Because the belt is what holds everything else together. And he says, the belt of truth. Can I tell you that truth is what holds everything else together. He says, you have to start with truth. Everything that we do in life is not based on an emotion. It's not based on our childhood upbringing. It's not based on a good experience or a bad experience or an opinion or a preference that we might have. Everything that we do is anchored to the belt of truth. And so he says, you have to start with truth, knowing what you believe and why you believe it, and making sure that your worldview is not based on preference, but your worldview is based on a biblical outlook. And so he says, You start by putting on the belt of truth. Uh, Make sure that you are uh, secure with truth. But then he talks about the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14. Uh, He says, uh, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this isn't what we would call imputed righteousness, that uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God, that at the moment of salvation, you were declared righteous. That means positionally before a holy God, when God looks at you, he sees his son Jesus, and he says, you are righteous. By the way, is anybody excited about that? That's good news, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees his son Jesus and and his righteousness. But here, he's not talking about positional righteousness because that happened at salvation. We don't have to continually be saved. But he is talking about practical righteousness. He's saying, if you want to be protected in your life, then put on that, uh, that, that breastplate of righteousness so that you won't give in to those temptations of lust and greed and anger and, and envy, uh, that you will uh, be secure and protected from that. And so make sure that you're wearing that uh, breastplate of righteousness. But then next he talks about the boots of peace. Verse 15, in your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, soldiers 
have to wear the right kind of footwear. Uh, the other day, I was with my son, Luke. We were in the front yard, and we were doing some batting practice, and we had a net set up, and we had a bucket of balls, and I was throwing him some balls, and, and uh, he was hitting, but he was wearing Crocs. And so, uh, and so every time he was swinging, he kept on slipping out of the Crocs, and I was getting frustrated. Eventually, I just said, Luke, go put some real shoes on. <laughs> you know, take the Crocs off. And uh, when he put some real shoes on, then he had better uh, footing. He had better grip. And here, uh, what, what, what Paul is saying is if we're going to put on the armor of God, we have to put on these boots of peace. And the idea is that uh, we have a secure footing, that we can be mobile, that we can be quick to go and to share the gospel with other people, the gospel of, of peace. In fact, the Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 52, verse number seven, how beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. And, and so uh, one of the greatest things that you can do if you feel like you are spiritually under attack, go share the gospel with someone. Go share the good news of the gospel of peace. Maybe instead of just looking within and, and, uh, and uh, just uh, completely demobilizing and stagnating, go on the offense and go tell someone about the good news of Jesus. Put on the boots of peace. But then the next one is the shield of faith. Notice verse 16. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith. And then he gives this description. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, don't miss this. Are you still with me today? In ancient culture, in ancient warfare, they would often begin the battle with perhaps maybe a surprise attack, and they would begin with throwing these fiery darts. And they would do so to injure the enemy, but more so to injure the enemy, they would do it to confuse the enemy. The darts would come in all different directions, and it would cause panic, it would cause fear and confuse the enemy. And I thought about that, and I thought the devil does the same thing in our lives today, that he wants to throw fiery darts at you in your life to cause confusion and panic and fear. And he's going to throw darts of doubt. Do I really believe this? Does God really have my best interests at heart? He's going to throw darts of discouragement. He's going to throw darts of depression. He's going to throw darts of anxiety. He's going to throw darts of insecurity. And what we have to recognize is that faith is the shield that protects us from the darts of the enemy. If you want to protect your mind, you have to be walking by faith. Trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. And so he says, hey, grab that shield of faith so that you can protect yourself from those darts that the enemy is throwing. Next, he mentions the helmet of salvation. Notice in verse 17, he says, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, here's the question that I have for you today is, if you're already saved, if you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, then how can we put on the helmet of salvation? How many of you today would say, I'm so thankful that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful that I have a home in heaven and a relationship with God, and I've been saved from my sin. How many of you are thankful for that reality today? And so when Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation, how do we do that? Well, there's an interesting verse, and if you're taking notes today, I like to write some cross-reference verses in my Bible. I would encourage you to write down this verse next to verse 17 in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 8. It says this. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. And I love this idea because one of Satan's most effective weapons against us is discouragement. He wants to discourage you so that he can deplete you, so that he can destroy you, and he's going to start by just discouraging you. But it's difficult to stay discouraged when our eyes are fixed on the hope of heaven. 
the hope of our salvation. That, hey, no matter how bad things get here on earth, we know that we have a home in heaven when we die. And so put on the hope of salvation. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Aren't you thankful for the hope that we have of heaven today? And so we can fix our eyes on that hope. And then he closes with this. The sword of the spirit, verse 17. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so here is your weapon today. Your weapon is the truth of God's word, the sword of the spirit. And uh, you can read about some famous swords in history, and you can go to some museums and see some pretty awesome swords. I was reading this week about uh, William Wallace and his famous sword, and you can go and see that sword. And, you know, today in modern warfare, we might not think of a sword as that advantageous. You know, in modern warfare, we can think of all kinds of things that we would say, I would choose that before I would choose a sword. And so a sword is nice to kind of look at and think about historically, but it's not very practical today. And tragically, that's how people view the Bible. The Bible is something interesting to think about. It's interesting to talk about. And we kind of treat the Bible like we would treat a sword in a nice museum. Let's look at it. Let's talk about it. But we never get out and use it. But the Bible is so powerful that Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What does that mean? That means that the Bible reads and knows the innermost parts of your being and can transform you from the inside out. And so when we read the Bible, the Bible's really reading us. And we have to recognize today that if we are going to take this spiritual battle seriously, and if you really want to get victory in your workplace, and if you really want to get victory in your marriage, and you really want to get victory over that temptation that you tried to get victory over, but it keeps on coming back and back again, then we have to utilize and wield the sword of the Spirit. How did Jesus withstand the temptation in Luke chapter 4 from Satan? How did he get victory? The Word. He quoted from the Pentateuch. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy, which is always kind of fascinating. If your spiritual victory was contingent upon how well you knew the book of Deuteronomy, how well would you do? Jesus was using scripture as his counterpunch. And so Paul's saying, man, we've got to take this fight seriously. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And maybe today you need to suit up. Maybe today you need to look at, throw back that slide for a second. Maybe you need to look at one of these pieces of armor and say, you know what? I haven't been putting that on. I haven't been utilizing this. And this is what God is calling me to do. And so Paul says, man, you've got to suit up. And I want you to see how he closes this letter. I want you to see starting in verse number 18. Got a few more minutes left? Verse 18. Praying always with all power and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. He talks about prayer. And for me, the utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now we're going to come back to those two verses, but let's keep reading. For which I am an ambassador in bonds, Paul's in prison as he writes this, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that, verse 21, ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. And so he's kind of giving his concluding remarks. And he's saying Tychicus is going to go and deliver this letter. And he's going to give you an update, and we want you to give him an update. And so he's kind of giving some housekeeping instructions. Verse 22, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren. In love with faith, 
from the God, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we close, I want you to see Paul's prayer request in verses 18, in verses 19 and 20. He says, As for me, that the utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly. Everybody say boldly. Paul's saying, I want you to put on the whole armor of God and I want you to pray for me that I can speak the gospel with boldness. Verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so twice, as Paul ends this letter, he's saying, would you pray for boldness? Would you pray that God would give me boldness? You know what we need desperately in the church today? Men and women that would be bold for the cause of Jesus Christ. Men and women that would be courageous in standing for what God has called us to stand for. And see, where we struggle with prayer, and remember, this is Paul's prayer request. He's saying, would you pray that I would have boldness? Where we struggle with prayer is often we are praying that God would make things better. Paul is in prison. And he didn't pray, would you pray that I would get released? He didn't pray, would you pray that I might be able to have my freedom? I'm stuck here in prison writing this. Would you pray for that? That's not what he asked for. He says, would you pray that God would give me boldness? Maybe today, instead of praying and asking God to make your situation better, maybe you need to pray and ask God to make you bolder. He's saying, pray that I can have boldness to do what God wants me to do. About 10 years ago, I was having a conversation with one of my friends, and he was working at a car wash at the time. And he was telling me how there were some coworkers that found out that he was a Christian, and they were mocking him and belittling him. And, uh, and in fact, one day they brought some kind of inappropriate magazines. They put them right in front of his face as a joke to kind of uh, belittle him. And we had this men's prayer that we would go to every Saturday, and we would have uh, this time of prayer together as men. And, and every week he would pray, would you pray that uh, my coworkers would stop doing this? And would you pray that you know, this situation would get better and that my coworkers would, would stop uh, antagonizing? And we would pray for that week after week after week. But then one day, I noticed that his prayers, his prayer requests started to change. And he said, would you pray that God would give me an opportunity to share my faith with them? Would you pray that God would give me the courage to invite them to church? And I believe that God used that situation in that young man's life. And I'm thankful today that that young man today is now a missionary in Mexico, and he is a missionary that Rock Hill Church supports on a monthly basis, uh, praising the Lord for the souls that are being saved there in Mexico. Why? He understood, I can't just ask God to make this situation better. I've I've got to ask God to make me bolder. And so today as we close... I want to encourage us as we put on the whole armor of God to be bold in what God has called you to do, to be bold in your identity in Christ, to be bold in your witness, to be bold in your home and ask God to do what only God can do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.